This is Ed Cashmark, the Everyday Economist, keeping my eye on the economy every day for you, with no bluster, no bias, and no bull. May 15, 2020. We had several economic releases today. The first one was retail sales for April. In March, retail sales fell 8.3%. The forecast for April was 11.2% decline, and actual was 16.4% decline. Just truly massive. Retail sales less autos was down 17.2%. Less autos and gas, it was down 16.2%. So tremendous damage being done in the retail sales sector. However, e-commerce sales were up 8.4%. So while everybody was stuck at home, they were doing all their shopping online, primarily on Amazon. So that's one uh, part of the economy that is benefiting from this pandemic. Empire State Manufacturing Survey. Uh, Empire State is New York. So this is just manufacturing in New York. Uh, the uh, index was down, uh, was minus 78.2 in April. Forecast for May was minus 65, and the actual was minus 48.5. So truly dreadful, but not as dreadful as expected. So just a sliver of good good news there. Industrial production was down 5.4% in March. Forecast for April was 11.5% decline. Actual was 11.2% decline, with manufacturing down 13.7%. The capacity, capacity utilization rate, in other words, what's the share of factories uh, being used, um, share of production capacity being used was 72.7% in March. Forecast was 64.1% for April and actual was 64.9%. So very noticeable decline in capacity utilization rate. Consumer sentiment. Now this was interesting. Consumer sentiment was 718 in in uh, April. The forecast for May was 66 and the actual was 73.7. This is the Consumer Sentiment Index uh, from the University of Michigan. So it was actually not only better than expected but (laughs) better than March. I mean that's, or better than April. That's that's really saying something. Now I'm, uh, and, and a lot of this had to do with the uh, with the, uh, you know, the stimulus uh, that Congress is putting out. So I'm just going to read some things here from this uh, article. Americans were less confident about their own finances, but a massive infusion of federal aid in the form of stimulus checks, extra unemployment benefits, and contributions to the salaries paid by small businesses help lift their spirits. Even in the face of the worst economic crisis in almost a century, consumer sentiment is still hovering well above its record low of 55.3 in 2008. That's really incredible. I mean, you think about what's going on right now. Half or or more of the economy is completely shut down. I mean, this has never happened before, ever. Not even the Great Depression. Even in the Great Depression, companies were still, op- were still open for business, although they won't see much business, but they weren't being forced to close their doors. And we're doing better than... Even 2008 for consumer sentiment. That's just incredible. I mean, 
part of that is because consumers were so incredibly confident going into this pandemic. I mean, consumer confidence was near record highs going into this pandemic. So, so there's that. Uh, federal aid, low interest rates, and widespread price discounting of consumer goods have made it easier for households to weather the storm early on, though it's unclear how long that will last. A portion of the sentiment survey that examines how Americans view the present rose to 83 points from 74.3. Yet another part of the survey that gauges attitudes for the next six months slipped again to 67.7 from 70.1. So while they're feeling better, consumers are feeling better about the present, still pretty uh, uh, pessimistic about the future. Consumers were still more worried about the threat to their health from COVID-19 than the pandemic's damage to their financial well-being. Wow, that's interesting. I mean, it's, you know, understandable, but um, a lot of people are being really, really hurt by this economic shutdown. I'm, I'm surprised that it's still, that that health is still uh, more of a concern than finances at this point. I understand, like I said, I understand it, but it's, well, let's just say we have big problems on both sides of health and economics. Just put it that way. 61% said the threat to their health was the biggest worry, while those who pointed to their finances as their number one concern slipped to 17% from 21%. So you're talking about three times more people are more worried about health than they are about their finances. Then again, you have the government coming in to help with finances, but not a whole lot of help in terms of trying to, you know, prevent you from getting the the virus or dying from it. So 21% said their biggest worry is due is the social isolation that's resulted from the stay-at-home orders and government-ordered shutdowns. That's up from 17% the prior month. Let's see here. Oh, once again, there was a large split based on party and ideological identification. I mean, it's just incredible how we have one of the worst health crises we've ever seen, and it's political. I mean, wow, this country's got a lot of problems. Republicans are relatively positive, although a good deal less than recently, and Democrats are gloomy, while political independents are broadly in the middle and more indicative of the overall result. Consumers appear more hopeful that the economy will start to recover soon, but economists warn it could take years for the U.S. to get back to normal, ab to normal, absent a vaccine for the virus. The idea of a long recovery is slowly sinking in with the public, too. The survey showed that consumers think the economy could struggle for years to recover all the lost ground. says here, we think the improvement in, in sentiment is fragile. Whether it can be sustained will, will depend in part on whether the government enacts further stimulus measures to help households and whether the relaxation of restrictions results in a resurgence in COVID-19 infections. So that's uh, what's going on with consumer sentiment. And then one more, uh, one more uh, release was... The job openings and labor turnover survey showed that uh, there were 7 million jobs available or open in the United States in February. The forecast for March was 5.9 million jobs and actual was 6.2 million jobs. So more than, a little bit more than forecast. So 6.2 million jobs are open right now in the United States, which is still quite high. Okay. 
on to just a couple of notes from the Financial Times. Oh, one other note. Barclays uh, estimates that now uh, they've they've reduced they've uh, changed their forecast to now a 42% decline in GDP in the second quarter. 42%. That, that makes sense to me. You got half the economy shut in. So 42% decline in GDP would, would definitely make sense to me. But again, that's an eye-watering number. Uh, the stock market today was fairly tame. It was only up 60 points on the Dow. Um, not a whole lot of action uh, on the on the economic data because it was all pretty much expected to be terrible. Uh, but a couple of uh, or one one major story is that Trump is blocking semiconductor shipments to Huawei, which is a Chinese technology company, uh, partly you know or, or part of his overall retaliatory measures for the virus. Um, but what was interesting was what was said by Global Times editor Hu Jijin, Hu Shijin, I think that's how you pronounce it, who is widely thought to have close ties to the Chinese government, said China may retaliate if the U.S. prevents microchip shipments to Huawei. He said, based on what I know, if the U.S. further blocks key technology supply to Huawei, China will activate the unreliable entity list restrict or investigate U.S. companies such as Qualcomm, Cisco, and Apple and suspend the purchase of Boeing airplanes. The unreliable entity list. They have a list of companies that they consider unreliable in China or in China for United States companies. It's a communist country, people. Understand that. It's a communist country, and they're all about power and control. That's what communism is all about, power and control. Nothing else. Understand that. Nothing else. Power and control. The unreliable entity list. They're watching us just like we're watching them, but they're a communist country, and their power and control and and their... Uh, wish to seem like a legitimate country, and you know they don't—they didn't want the reputation to be to be hit uh, when this virus came out. Is one of the reasons why they that why they suppressed it, why they uh, suppressed news, why they uh, suppressed whistleblowers, why they uh, didn't want anybody to know about the virus. You know, power and control—that's what it's all about. And now the entire world is suffering from their communist ideology. All right, moving on. A couple of notes here from the Financial Times. Uh, the first one is on Japan here. It says, Japan lifts emergency rules in most districts as infections fall. Japan has ended a state of emergency across most of the country, making a, a big step toward rebooting the world's fourth largest economy as coronavirus infections subside. The move also provides some vindication for Japan's strategy of voluntary social distancing, which has brought about a reduction in infections without a compulsory lockdown. The state of emergency could be lifted across all of Japan before May 31, the date it was due to expire. 
In Tokyo, the number of new cases has fallen from a peak of 200 a day in mid-April to 20 to 30 a day now. Within the state of emergency means prefectural governments no longer have the power to request business closures. Hope we can get to that here in the United States soon. And uh, some notes on the airline industry in the United States. U.S. carriers eye job cuts when bailout terms expire. The last time the U.S. government... Well, I'm not going to read that. Let's see. Uh, so far, U.S. airlines have secured $12.4 billion of $25 billion in government funding available for payrolls. Hmm. Only half of it. Each getting 70% in the form of grants that do not have to be repaid. As well as curbing share buybacks and executive pay, companies that took the money agreed not to lay off staff or axe routes until September 30th. So, I guess that means that when September 30th comes, so will axe, huh? Even though air passenger volumes in the U.S. have fallen by more than 90% since March, and a V-shaped recovery is no longer on the cards. So, you know, they're just holding on to their people just so they can get money. Once they get the money and once September 30th hits, boom. We'll see what happens on September 30th. But it's interesting that if they're in such dire straits, only half of the money that the government has offered has been tapped. Some airline bosses tried to offer the government more equity in exchange for less onerous conditions, including giving the carriers flexibility to close some uneconomical flying routes and cutting jobs. The government, however, wanted to ensure airlines would still be there at the end of the pandemic. Would still be there. Would still be operating at the end of the pandemic. And that employees would be retained even if taxpayers were funding their salaries. Yep. The pandemic has turned the government into a financing source of last resort for swaths of corporate America, but the socialization of risk and and the picking of winners and losers has concerned some people. Okay. Now on to a very interesting webinar today. Well, it was actually not as interesting as I thought it would be. I, I was hoping to get more out of it, but it was a, a webinar put on by the National Association of Business Economists, or NAIB, on social distancing, the impact of social distancing uh, on both economies and health. And I'm just going to go through some of these slides here, uh, what they shared. One of them I thought was very interesting was simulated values for different social distancing coefficients. Um, in other words, how much, you know, are people being allowed, you know, to... To congregate or not, and what it showed was that the the impact was primarily on the infection rate and the hospitalization rate, but had no impact whatsoever on the length of the pandemic uh, going out to 180 days. So he had three curves for different levels of social distancing and obviously the one with the, the least social distancing was the highest in terms of hospitalizations and fatalities but all three curves came to the same point uh in terms of the number of you know the decline in hospitalizations and fatalities uh toward the end of the pandemic and they all converged at the same point so we're not changing the length of the pandemic, but this is what this is saying is we're not changing the length of the pandemic at all using social distancing. 
And there was a tremendous amount of math in this presentation, which I thought was kind of odd. I mean, this was a presentation for economists, but even even for economists, it was it was too much math. It was just pretty incredible. Um, says no economy in the world is anywhere close to herd immunity. Under the most optimistic scenario, a vaccine is six to twelve months away. What are governments to do? It is extremely costly to keep economies closed and shutdowns are not sustainable going forward. But just reopening infected economies and letting them reach herd immunity is also not viable. How do we best resume economic activity while maintaining health and safety? Here's an interesting uh, note. The experience of the countries that are ahead of the pack in terms of reopening is too diverse to provide definitive answers. Sweden was the only country that did not impose mandatory social distancing and initially performed better than most economically. However, new data show that expenditure fell only marginally less than in neighboring Denmark, which had a shutdown. Sweden's epidemic curve, on the other hand, not only has not yet peaked, but is now uh, accelerating. Denmark's curve, by contrast, is heading downwards. Both economies, because they're small and interconnected to the rest of the world, are bound to be hit very, very hard regardless of what they do at home. Germany, this is, really, this is really interesting. Germany took yet another approach. It started to boost medical capacity to cope with COVID-19 in January, adopting mild social distancing policies. In January, nobody really heard about this thing until late January. So why was Germany, I mean, you know, we heard about it in December, but it wasn't, it wasn't a concern by hardly anybody at all. Yet Germany was on the ball in January starting to prepare for this. That's quite interesting. Notably, it also brought health care services to COVID patients rather than bringing patients to infected hospitals, as in Italy. Both its epidemic and recession curves are the best in Europe, yet Germany, too, is now facing a second wave of infections as it started to loosen up its controls. But they were bringing healthcare services to the patients rather than bringing the patients to the hospitals, which is interesting because, you know, not everybody that goes to the hospital goes into an ICU bed, but uh, I'm wondering what kind of services you can bring to people for COVID that you, you know, how I don't know. I mean, I thought hospitals... I thought you had to go to a hospital if it was bad enough, but maybe it, was, it wasn't bad enough. I guess this is probably for people that were uh, only mildly infected rather than having severe infection. But still, pretty interesting the way they handled it in Germany. It says, for sure, uh, for sure, for such a strategy to work uh, for testing... Uh, contact tracing and isolating are essential and should continue, but the scale required in order to, main, to be the main policy tool to support reopening is just beyond reach, requiring to test and isolate millions of individuals a day. What is needed is, above all, reliable information disseminated locally on the true state of the pandemic in a timely manner. This means reliable statistics on the infection risk that individuals and communities face. Let's see what else he says here. During the early stages of the pandemic, the aversion to isolation is strong. The expected income loss is uncertain, and the information on the individual infection risk is all but absent. The incentive to isolate voluntarily is thus very weak. On its own, voluntary self-isolation is not very effective in flattening the curve. 
But now as the pandemic curve has peaked and people become more aware, people become more aware, more accustomed to isolation and governments support the income losses with, with stimulus, voluntary decisions are likely to be more effective. Individuals and businesses need to be well informed and have the right incentives. Mandatory social distancing was critical in flattening the first COVID-19 pandemic wave, even though it caused an unprecedented drop in the level of social and economic activity. To fend off the risk of a second wave without killing the economy, we need an environment for responsible individual decisions about social distancing. We have, we, while we have access to zip code level weather forecasts at the touch of our screens, we can look up crime and car accident statistics neighborhood by neighborhood. The quality of COVID-19 information is still remarkably low. To allow economies to reopen, relying on widespread and pervasive voluntary social distancing, we need random testing at the local level, together with the transparent dissemination of the outcomes via local news, social media, and even direct text messaging to local residents. Now, a second presentation was, was put on as well. Uh, <laughs> found this interesting. Uh, measures of mobility and social distancing by state and day. The av- uh, th- so they had three measures that they were following. The average change in distance traveled relative to pre-COVID-19 baseline. The change in, uh, the change in non-essential visits relative to the baseline. And the change in unique human encounter rate relative to the baseline. Unique human encounter rate. And I was like, what in the world is that? And she said it was like something based on how many times a day somebody pings somebody else with their cell phone in a one kilometer, in a one square kilometer area or something like that. And I was just like, okay, well, uh, what about human encounters that don't involve cell phones? Are they following that? Uh, apparently not, or at least, I don't know, I mean, but unique human encounter rate, that was a odd, odd description. And it was interesting to see that mobility actually fell drastically even before states put on shutdown mandates. So that was an interesting thing. Uh, let's see, what else did she say here? Well, what I found, what I found interesting, let's see, all states mandate effects significant and smaller magnitudes for early states. So the, 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 uh, statistical significance was high for the impact of state mandates, uh, in terms of well, I guess in terms of flattening the curve, I think, is what this is about. Uh, pre-mandate, we see most of the mobility and social distancing drops in the data. Early mandate states such as California, New York, New Jersey, and Illinois, we saw a drop in average distance travel of 4.1%, drop in non-essential visits of 5.2%, drop in encounter rates of 4.7%. Mandate effects are significant and smaller when all states are considered. Now, what I thought was interesting was she had a, a, a slide here that shows the evolution and death, evolution of death and hospitalization rates by mandate states. Shows that the death rate for states with without mandates was significantly higher by a factor of about four 
compared to states without mandates. But the hospitalization rate per 100,000 population was almost identical. Same with for uh, non-essential visits. States that had a big drop in non-essential visits had a much smaller death and hospitalization rates where compared to states that did not have a drop in non-essential visits by a factor of, geez, it looks like about five. But again, hospitalization rates per 100,000 were almost identical. So here you have a situation where shutdown mandates and a drop in non-essential visits had no impact whatsoever on hospitalizations but it did have an impact on fatalities. So that, to me, seems like the the difference in fatalities is probably due to people dying at home or in nursing homes, because if they died in the hospital, then you would have had, you know, more hospitalizations for states that had no no shutdown mandates or, 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 or less restrictive shutdown mandates and of a smaller drop in non-essential visits. That's just my take on that. Uh, And the health effects of changes in mobility uh, did not have much of an impact on health in terms of uh, states that had early mandates versus states that had later mandates in terms of shutdowns. So I thought that was interesting. In other words, the states that shut down earlier didn't have much of an impact on hospitalizations and deaths versus states that shut down later. Hmm. Interesting. Interesting on that one. And what else here? Early... Well, okay, there's nothing there. Oh, wait. Well, at least half of the reduction in mobility and social distancing came before the average date of mandate implementation. We estimate on average 52% fewer non-essential visits 20 days after the first case was detected. Given that a 1% drop in non-essential visits in the past week results in 9.2 fewer deaths per day per 100 million. 9.2 9.2 fewer deaths per day per 100 million. Okay, what is 10%? What is 1% of 100 million? 1 million. 9.2 fewer deaths per day per 100 million. I mean, that is just like not even mentionable. <laughs> and I asked her, okay, I said, so what is that in compared to? You know, what is a 9.2 compared to? In other words, is it 10 times fewer deaths? Is it 20 times fewer deaths? Is it 2 times fewer deaths? Well, she didn't get back to me on that, so didn't get an answer on that. But I think it's a pretty, 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 like a very, very small impact, it seems like. And then, and then she said, from average drop, that would be 478 fewer deaths per day per 100 million. Uh, given that... From an average drop, it would it would be four. Okay, that's how she compared it. It would be four hundred seventy-eight fewer deaths per day per one hundred million compared to the average. 
I guess. And then she said, or 4.78 million fewer deaths per day. And I said, no, that's not right. And she said, oh, you're right. I'll correct my slide because we're not having millions of people die per day. <laughs> so sometimes when you watch a webinar, you got to point out their flaws if they if they have them, if they're really, really bad. Um, what else here? It was not the mandates that primarily brought mobility down because people pretty much did it themselves. Pre-mandate mobility drops are present and represent most of the variation in drops. And releasing mandates alone may not result in large uptakes in mobility. Okay, that's the end of that presentation. So again, I was really hoping to see a better uh, analysis of what was really the the impact of all these shutdowns in terms of you know how many lives did we save and um i guess this 478 fewer deaths per day across the na across the nation i'm assuming that's what that is is probably the best way we could put it and we're seeing about 2000 you know 1500 to 2000 deaths a day so that's probably about a, a quarter uh, you know, we would be seeing 25% fewer deaths per day um, due to these uh, shutdown measures. So that's good that we're saving lives, you know, but how many people are losing their jobs and their businesses and their retirement accounts and their sanity from all of this, you know, that's a whole other side of the equation. Okay. I want to go quickly here through some notes on an energy webinar I watched the other day. Uh, lots of oil production is being shut in because received prices are less than operating costs. Supply is still larger than demand, so inventories keep building. Uh, commercial inventories are at all-time levels. Green stimulus in Europe uh, and fuel taxes in India will weigh on demand. People are reluctant to use mass transit, and that could support demand for oil because people will want more cars, especially in China. Gasoline is starting to recover as economies reopen and people start to drive again. Diesel demand is starting to wane, though, uh, which could be a, a sign that industry is slowing. Well, industry is already slow. I hope it's not slowing any further. <clears throat> uh, the energy share of the S&P 500 index is the smallest ever. That's interesting. So even though, we have, even though we're actually a net exporter in the United States of, of oil now, and, and we have, we're, we've seen more production than ever up until the pandemic, the share of energy companies uh, of the S&P 500 index is at the smallest ever. I suppose that has something to do with the fact that technology companies are have taken over. Shale shut in, shale shut in, not likely to balance the oil market. In other words, if we if we shut in all shale, it's still not gonna it's still not gonna reduce supplies enough, because 80% of reduction, 80% uh, of the reduction in supplies is from wells that are three years old or less. And I do believe that shale comes from wells that are older. In other words, shale is kind of like the last remnants of the well that they, that they, that they extract. Demand is down 7% in quarter one twenty from quarter four nineteen, and expected to be down 25% in quarter two from quarter four nineteen. It's not about price discovery, though. It's about volume discovery. In other words, how much volume uh, is is going to balance 
the market. Prices are signaling more production needs to be shut in to bring supply down. Price. This was from a week ago, so it might, the story might be a little different now as oil has started to rebound. Um, prices are signaling more produ- uh, prices at the pump doesn't matter if people are locked in their house and can't drive. Stripper wells, which strips out last remnants of production, are being shut in. Stripper well operating cost requires $25 a barrel, but oil is currently only at 23 as of the time of the webinar, but I think it's around uh, 27 or $28 today. Um, stripper wells are less than 10% of total production, so even if you take out all the stripper wells, it's not going to be enough to, shut, to, to uh, reduce supplies to balance out the market. Oil sands, shale, and deep water exploration are the only methods that have been producing in recent years, which is interesting. The oversupply of crude was 7.2 million barrels per day in quarter one, 18 million barrels per day expected for quarter two in terms of oversupply, and then pretty much back to even in quarter three. The forecast is for $40 a barrel in quarter four twenty, so expect gas prices to be higher, but not all the way back to pre-pandemic levels. Oil prices, oil, the oil price crashed through the production cost floor recently, so some oil companies will go under. Cheaper oil could weigh on demand and production for renewable energy, too, because if, if it's cheaper for gas and oil, then there's no reason to try to, quote, save money with uh, new renewable energy. But they're probably going to push ahead with it anyway. Ethanol has been annihilated in this down cycle, which is bad for corn growers, and U.S. refining system is much more geared to produce gasoline compared to the rest of the world. So that's some insights on the energy industry. Now for an update on the coronavirus. Not much to share. The death rate for the globe was 6.7% yesterday compared to 6.73% the prior day. The growth rate in fatalities was 1.8%, same as yesterday, or same as the prior day. And for the United States, we have a death rate of 5.96% at the highest since the pandemic began. And the fatality growth rate was 2%, down slightly from the day before. And now for my tip number 25 on how to stay sane during unemployment. This is under the third commandment of try new things. Tip number 25 is try new movies. I know that Comcast customers are getting Showtime and uh, what's the other one? HBO and other movie channels for free for the next week, I think. They call it the (laughs) Watch-a-thon. So I actually tuned in last night. Man, that's the first time I've watched a movie in a long, long time. And boy, did I need it. Just sat down and watched a movie for the first time since I can remember. Other than Star Wars, of course. I watch Star Wars a lot. (laughs) Can't get enough of Star Wars. Anyway, uh, yeah, try new movies, you know. Watch a movie you've never watched before. There's certainly enough time and uh, and ability to do that now. So, um, Take your mind off of all your worries and concerns and watch a new movie. Help you help you get through being unemployed. That's all I have for today, folks. If you like what you hear, please subscribe or follow me on whatever platform you're listening on. Please spread the word to your family, friends, neighbors, and relatives. If I do have new followers, I will mention them on my podcast to thank you. And you can also watch or, or listen to previous episodes for my tips on how to stay sane during unemployment. And now I have a special message. Today is May 15th. 
the first day of my uh, restarted and my new format of my podcast was April 15th, tax day in the United States. So it's been a month and it's been interesting. I've learned a lot about the economy, about the coronavirus, about how to put together a podcast and so many other things. It's really been a very enjoyable experience for me and I hope it's been an enjoyable experience for you well, at least I would I should say not enjoyable more like valuable. I hope it's valuable for you because it's certainly not enjoyable for you to listen to me talk about horrible economic news and fatalities every single day, but I hope it's valuable and it's helping you to weather the storm, under understand the storm, get through the storm and make better decisions. That's really that's really what this all this is all about, helping you to make better personal and business decisions. Um, and I just wanted to say that my podcast originated, uh, I think around 2015, 2016, something like that. I went for about a year or two. It was pretty much just me reading my economic reports. Um, and then my father passed away in September of 2017 and I shut everything down. Uh, had to help my mother with all her all the things she needed help with, and uh, I also needed for myself to to grieve and just you know deal with the disaster of losing my father. And I never put it back out again uh, up until April fifteenth of this year. So I hope you understand why I've been absent for these last couple of years. Um, but I'm very thankful for you who have followed me and who, uh, followed me, uh, or, or, or sub subscribed to my podcast, even while I wasn't even recording it for two years. I still, I was still getting followers, even though I wasn't recording my podcast for two years. To me, that's amazing. And that tells me that there's some value here for people. So I thank you. I want to also thank all of, all of my listeners, uh, and from all over the world, and I just want to take a, a second here to to share with all of you the countries where people are listening to my podcast, and I think this is just fascinating, just fascinating. Here I am sitting in my house in Minnesota recording my podcast, and I have people listening to my podcast from all over the world. People are listening to my podcast in the United States. The United Kingdom, Australia, India, Canada, France, Hong Kong, Saudi Arabia, Poland, Germany, Pakistan, Mauritius, which is in Africa, New Zealand, Gambia, also in Africa, Tanzania in Africa, Brazil, Egypt in Africa, Chile, Spain, Finland, Malaysia, Norway, and Thailand. That, this blows my mind. This blows my mind. Technology is incredible. I'm sitting here talking about the, the United States economy and the global economy and the coronavirus and tips on unemployment in my bedroom, in my house in Minnesota. And I got people from all these fantastic countries all over the world listening to me. It's just amazing. So I thank you for tuning in. I hope that this has been valuable for you. And please spread the word, you know. Let's get more people in all these countries and, and get more people in more countries listening to my podcast uh, and being more informed about the economy and what's going on with the pandemic. You can help me as I am helping you.
And finally, I wanted to share this uh, little tidbit with you. You can find my podcast, The Everyday Economist, on Spotify. And you can also find my uh, jazz music CD called Breaking the Ice on Spotify. Now, how many economists do you know that have a podcast and a jazz CD both on Spotify? (laughs) I challenge you to find anybody else. So, spread the word about my music too. Check out my music on on Spotify. And just to give you a little taste, I think you should listen to my song called The Little Things in Life. Why? Well, because it talks about Friday night and the very first lyric. As a matter of fact, I'm going to share with you the first verse of my song called The Little Things in Life. Just to give you a little tease, just to give you a little taste. Maybe you'll listen to my other songs too. It's Friday night. I show it like a drink. That's quite alright. Cause it's been a long, hard week. Slip off my shoes. Sprawl out on the couch. Sip the nice cold brew. Before I dress up and head out I don't know if anyone does the things I do To help me make it through the day But you've got your way too The little things in life Help us all get by The little things we do Help us pass the time When our time is up That's just a little taste of my music. I hope you liked it. That's me playing the saxophone. I wrote all the music, all the lyrics, produced all or arranged all the songs with some help. And uh, got a lot of help from a lot of really great musicians. uh, Two in particular, Wayne McFarland from Ipso Facto and Michael Bland, who used to play drums for a guy named Prince on that song. Uh, What an experience that was. Paid the guy 150 bucks, came in, knocked it out in one, in like 10 minutes, and that was it. Not even 10 minutes, five minutes. That was it. Super cool guy, too. All right, folks, that's all I have for today. I hope you found today's uh, episode valuable and even a little fun at the end. Please uh, stay safe and stay sane. This is Ed Cashmark, the Everyday Economist. Signing off on a beautiful Friday in Minnesota. Yes, in Minnesota, we do have beautiful weather for, you know, three day, three months of the year. <laughs> but no, it, it really gets warm. 80, 90 degrees, believe it or not. For those of you who don't know much about Minnesota, yep, it gets warm in the summer. And it is beautiful. I sure hope they will open up the beaches so we can all go swimming. But it sounds to me like we may not be able to go swimming at all this year. Oh, well, find something else to do. Again, stay safe, stay sane. This is Ed Cashmark, the Everyday Economist.
Thanks for listening. Enjoy the rest of your day and have a great weekend.